happy 2021, everybody. First, I hope everyone had a joyous holiday season. And I pray that 2021 is prosperous. I mean, 2020 was tough for a lot of people. And while I know it's customary when a year ends to talk about what we've accomplished, to give our biggest flexes, to me, the biggest flex you could possibly have in 2020 is just being alive. Like, that's it. That's all it requires. If you made it through 2020 healthy and safe, that's the victory. If you made it through 2020 with your people, your family, your friends, healthy and safe, then you are wonderfully blessed. Also, I want to thank everybody who supported this podcast, those who supported it from day one, those who came along a little later, whatever time you spent with me in the last year, I just want to thank you for it. And whatever time you choose to spend with me going forward, I am eternally grateful. So y'all know how we do. Let's begin with our word of the week, which is asshole. Now, I'm sorry, I couldn't come up with something more eloquent, but that's just the only word that comes to mind when I think about how Mitch McConnell, who I believe is one of the five worst people in this country, and you guys have heard me say this before on this podcast, and he's not five. And in many respects, he's worse than Donald Trump. And as we've recently discovered, he's probably more powerful than Donald Trump. So as of the taping of this podcast, millions of people have already received their $600 stimulus checks or stimmies, as we've come to call it. The $600 is better than zero, but the $600 is a insult to the American people who have had to wait since the spring for a second stimulus check. People have had the stomach saying corporations receive massive million and billion dollar bailouts while the people have received $1,200 and then half of that the second go round. Meanwhile, let me tell you what's happening in other countries. Our neighbors in Canada, they gave their citizens $2,000 a month for four months. Meanwhile, in New Zealand, they gave full-time workers $585 a week, part-time workers $350 a week in Australia. They gave businesses $1,500 every two weeks per employee to help them keep these businesses afloat. They double unemployment benefits. And the banks instituted a six-month loan deferral program for 98% of businesses. Basically, those governments acted like they gave a fuck about their own citizens. But not here. Oh, no, not here. In this country, Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader out of Kentucky, decided to block $2,000 stimulus checks from being voted on by the Senate because, quite simply, he's a dick. So in case you don't understand how this works, let me break it down so you do understand. As the Senate majority leader, Mitch McConnell determines what issues are voted on by the Senate. Notice how quickly the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett happened. That was brought to the Senate quick, fast, in a hurry. Now, when it's something Mitch McConnell or the GOP cares about, best believe that shit will be on the Senate floor quick. Mitch McConnell has over 200 bills on his desk, which already have been passed by the House of Representatives. So uh, you would think that with these 200 bills, he might actually want to do something that might make this country better. But oh no, for example, Mitch McConnell 
would not bring a critical amendment to the Voting Rights Act to the Senate floor, which would have been ideal in terms of honoring the late John Lewis. But McConnell, like many conservatives, understand that protecting voting rights, especially for people of color, means also signing up for extinction. See, this country is getting browner. It's getting more progressive. And people like Mitch McConnell, they intend to stand in the way of a changing nation. They want this country's leadership to be what it's mostly been, white, preferably male, and conservative. Mitch McConnell is proud of his nickname, which is the Grim Reaper. He gleefully told former President Barack Obama that he would never confirm any of his judicial appointments, including his Supreme Court candidates. When Obama said Trump's response to the pandemic was, quote, an absolute chaotic disaster while on a private call with former members of his staff, McConnell publicly said, and again, direct quote, I think President Obama should have kept his mouth shut. He also referred to Obama as classless. Now, I know this won't surprise you, but all these years that Donald Trump has been calling Obama everything but a child of God, Mitch McConnell has said not a damn thing. It was Mitch McConnell who said the election of Barack Obama was, quote, paid for by the sin of slavery. Mitch McConnell has been in the Senate since 1984. Kentucky ranks 44th in health care, 38th in education, 11th in crime and corrections. He ain't did shit for Kentucky, but he's done quite a bit for himself because his personal wealth now stands at $34 million, all of which happened while he was senator. Now, I have often wondered, why would Kentuckians release this demon spawn known as Mitch McConnell on us? And 80% of the answer has been because of racism, because Kentucky is deeply conservative, anti-abortion, and in many parts, anti-everything not white. But that's not the only answer. The other part of this has to do with voter suppression. Kentucky used to have 3,700 polling places across the state. Guess how many they have now? Less than 200. Louisville, which is its most diverse city, has one. One. For over 600,000 people. In the blackest city in Kentucky, in the city that killed Breonna Taylor, they have one place for people to vote. That ain't even subtle. So I give you all of this history of Mitch McConnell for a reason, which is directly tied to today's guest. But before I do, let me just say, with all the disrespect I can possibly muster, fuck Mitch McConnell because he's an asshole. Our word of the week. Okay, as I mentioned a moment ago, there's a reason I bring up Mitch McConnell being a truly unrepentant asshole. Right now in Georgia, the 1A most important election is happening. There's a runoff election for two Georgia Senate seats. On the Democratic side, you have John Ossoff, Reverend Raphael Warnock. On the Republican side, you have Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue. The reason this runoff is just shy of being as important as the presidential election is because control of the Senate is at stake. Let me break this down. If the Republicans maintain majority control of the Senate by winning at least one of these races, Mitch McConnell will remain the Senate majority leader. If the Republican lose both races, the Senate will be evened up. And guess who will have the deciding vote? 
That would be Vice President Kamala Harris. As of now, 2.5 million Georgians have voted. That is a record. Now, one of the reasons the turnout has been so strong is because of my guest on today's podcast. If you've never heard of Latasha Brown, you should have. Latasha is co-founder of Black Voters Matter, which formed in 2016. Latasha, along with folks like Stacey Abrams, is a big reason Georgia turned blue. But Latasha's extraordinary grassroots efforts are a big reason there was a huge Black voter turnout across all of the country. Leading into the presidential election, Latasha and the Black Voters Matter family traveled across the South and in many other Black cities by bus to register and encourage Black people to vote. Listen, we all have friends and family who don't vote. Black people have been let down by the system, so I get why so many of us don't choose to vote and look at it as being ineffective. Latasha encounters disillusioned and apathetic voters all the time. So if you have people in your life who don't vote, or if you want to know how you can talk to people who aren't regularly engaged in voting or politics, or think that politics is simply pointless, this podcast is about to be a game changer. Coming up next on Jamel Hill's Unbothered, Latasha Brown. So, uh, Latasha, you already have saved the world. <laughs> um, and now you are, I'm talking to you. Um, the day before you head off on another delightful bus tour uh, for Black Voters Matter, uh, because as everybody knows that we have a very important election coming up in Georgia with the runoff. Um, you know, the, the strategy for a presidential election is one thing. Uh, explain what's the strategy when it comes to invigorating the voting base for a runoff that takes place after the presidential election that everybody had to get all whipped up about. You mean in between Christmas and New Year? <laughs> yes, and also that too. It's also the holiday season. <laughs> and that too. You know, it's interesting. It is, it's a, let me say, it is a heavy lift. It is a heavy lift. But, you know, the difference this year is we've got some momentum. We've got a little wind under our wings. And so I do also think that people really know what's at stake. Um, normally in Senate elections, people don't know who the senator, their senators are. I mean, at the end of the day, you can go around the country. Most folks don't know their senators. They may know one or two people, um, recognizable names, but, you know, it's not even, it's interesting. I think it is the most, um, it is the most unknown, powerful position in this country, right? That whole U.S. Senate piece. And so in this process, there's a couple of things that we've got to do. One, we've got to keep people engaged and not lose interest because it, it's been a long campaign season, right? And so, and then two key people focused on, we still got work to do. So we've launched a campaign. It's called, let's do it again. You know, let's do it again, y'all. Come on. And really be able to tap into, uh, for me, like the positive energy and the power of joy and the season. So instead of the season being a distraction, you know, let's use the season and lean into it. And so, Part of what we're doing when we go out tomorrow on our, um, we're going to turn the bus to a big old sleigh. We are literally um, going and creating kind of an atmosphere around the holidays where a lot of folks are struggling. You know, this this uh, COVID-19 has been devastated to the state of Georgia. And I know a lot of people looking at this election cycle at 
you know, how it impacts, how it impacts the nation, but it's been really devastating for Georgia. And so the way that we're keeping people engaged, one, um, we're using this momentum, kind of creating this atmosphere of around the season and literally telling folks what's at stake so that they really do understand that this ain't about just like what political parties have power, but this really is about what kind of representation we'll have for Georgia, a state that we've had just super challenging leadership in this state um, or the lack thereof for the last few years. And so a lot of it is really engaging people. You know, we're, we're, I mean, it's COVID-19, so we're not gathering, you know, you know, you in the ATL, we live our lives outside, right? You know, there's a, there's a concert every minute. Um, and now you don't see that. So we're not really engaging each other the same way, but for the most part, just this kind of interaction and an engagement. And so we've been really creative to do that so that we're not, we're really not passing on COVID, but that we're doing these caravans. So while the, the main Christmas parade has been canceled, we're doing our neighborhood Christmas parades. Like we're going through the neighborhoods, you know, with the bus, with a caravan of cars, we'll stop at places, get out, wave, you know, really, really engage folks, have loud music, you know, so it's kind of like uh, um, I'm bringing some joy and giving information to folks. So I think that that's the way that's the best way for us to engage right now to let people know that it's not over. Remind them that they have power and to really be able to create a little joy in the process while doing it. So um, for those who uh, and I will speak to some of this in, in your in- intro or have sp- spoken to some of this in, in, in your intro. But uh, for a lot of people who are listening, um, you know, they may not have understood what your contribution to this presidential election was. I greatly understood what it was. And for those who may not have been aware, uh, your creation of Black Voters Matter was so key and not just Georgia, but uh, Detroit, my hometown. I saw the footage when you went there and I thought that was really, you know, wonderful. Um, A ton of cities across the South where you all have tried to mobilize, energize and speak to uh, black voters about what's at stake and engage them in a way that I think is is very unique compared to other voting drives that you've seen. Because one, you're targeting black people, right? Unapologetically, unapologetically targeting black people. But what I love about uh, your organization, um, and I heard you say this before, is that it was a reason why you co-founded this Black Voters Matter as opposed to Black Votes Matter. Uh, can you explain why it was? important to make that distinction that this is about black voters as in black people versus just getting the vote. Absolutely. So Cliff Albright and I in 2016 created the organization and we were very, um, we wanted to be very intentional about everything in this creation, including the name. And so part of over the years, what we've seen is people, you know, when candidates are running or political parties, I call it the three weeks out before the election, they drop some fairy dust, a little resources, and it's supposed to round the Negroes up. And, you know, that's it. You never see them anymore. Right. And so for us, part of, you know, it was almost as if black people were just being reduced to a number. Like we were just a part of a numbers game to help someone else win power. And and ultimately what we wanted to do is shift this, the, the paradigm and have the focus on black voters, not black votes. Because as I always say, there's a whole bunch of people that care about black votes, but don't care about black voters. And so we wanted to start from that premise of that our concern was our people, right? And not just while, while we say black voters, we mean everybody in our community, right? Whether you are registered or not, you know, I have, I remember going on a canvas a couple of years ago 
with another organization and I'm sitting there watching them and they're walking by people. And I'm like, well, like, why are you walking by people? Cause they got these little, little these little pads, these um, with the minivan system on it. And if your name is not on the list, they're not gonna talk to you. There's something just so inhumane to me about that. Right. And then I remember later on, you know, there was a brother who had a felony conviction and they asked him if he was registered to vote. And he was like, no, I'm, I'm unable to vote. And they walked past him. I was like, wait, 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 wait. So you think this brother doesn't matter? Like, like, like he doesn't count, you know? And so our premise is the exact opposite. We believe that every single human being in our community, we spend a lot of time with children. If you look us on, on our tours, when we're on our tours, when we see children, we take the time to go talk to children. We literally listen to them. We might ask them questions. Matter of fact, I'm in a safe way, you know, like literally then be able to um, teach them some chants, vote for me until I can, like literally engage them because part of our work is really rooted in community building, that this is literally about power. This isn't just about participation. So for us, we're not reducing black people to just a vote or a number that wouldn't be any different than what happened to us during enslavement. But what we are, what we see is we see the power and the potential in our people. And voting is one tool, we believe, of our agency to really be able to influence who is in office that's going to make policy about us to sometimes reduce the harm that's happening to our communities and literally be able to put people in office that um, will shape and be in alignment with an agenda for us. So our work is really rooted and a greater premise that is not about believing in the system, it's about believing in us and using our power and every single tool available to us to literally be able to shape our communities and protect our communities by any means necessary. Now, that's something when I talk to people who are frustrated about our political system, who say, you know, they don't vote or they don't plan on voting. I always try to sort of preach something similar. You have far more patience than I do. And I always say, like, this is just one part. This is just one brick. This is not like the end all, you know, kind of be all of the process. Nevertheless, you being on the ground, you're engaging with people um, who are either non-voters or just don't feel good about this system. What have you learned from what they have told you about why they just don't feel connected politically to our system? You know, it's so interesting. I am. I wish. Oh, my God. I wish I could find this brother. It was 20 years ago. And um, part of my success, I'm fooled just even thinking about it. Part of my ability to be effective at organizing came from a brother that was like, I ain't damn registering. I'm not signing your paper. And so I had my speech down at the time. I was like, no, everybody got to vote. This is your people die for you. This is your responsibility. And um, they ran up on these brothers that were sitting outside. It was actually in a community in Alabama and they were sitting outside on a car. And there was a brother who I was asking the register to vote. He was like, no, nah, I'm not. I ain't registering because I don't believe in that system. And I was like, literally, I was like, yeah, I understand that. But we got to vote because such, such, such. And I couldn't. Like I literally couldn't break through, but then I remember he sat there and literally his engagement with me, he was absolutely brilliant, like absolutely brilliant. And to the point where I couldn't even, I didn't even have a comeback, you know? And I remember him saying, you know, when you learn, he was like, really, when you're able to listen to a brother like me, 
that's when you're going to know how to do your work. Like, that's when you're going to know. And I, it's almost like that brother's in the back of my head. When I'm organizing, he taught me how to organize because his operative word, which is another person taught me this a couple of years, that around the same period too. I guess I wasn't listening to folks or something, right? Because there was another, another woman um, who told me something similar, but a little bit different way. But this brother, what was the operative word? is when he was like, when you learn how to listen to me. And so it was interesting. I was so busy in my early years, literally trying to force people to believe what I believe or really trying to, you know, I'm trying to evangelize you, right? I'm literally trying to evangelize you. I want to make you a believer, right? But it has stuck with me all of these years that he was absolutely right. Part of the reason that we weren't able to reach and folks aren't able to reach folks in our community because they never think that they have anything to say. They don't listen. And so part of our work, even when we're on, you know, when we're organizing on the street, my objective is not just, okay, I got to get you to register to vote, right? That at the end of the day, if I can literally be in the space to be able to listen to you, to hear you, a couple of things are going to happen. One, you're going to help inform me. You're going to put me on to what's happening and what people are feeling, right? That's going to help shape the dynamics. Secondly, literally, it helps me feel a sense of connection with you and for you to feel a sense of connection with me so that you know that I'm not just coming around because I don't care about you. I'm just coming around because I want you to vote, but that I really do believe that you have value and you have something to say and you have something that is a value. And in that process, what I've learned when you got that kind of exchange with people, they're far more open to even listen to you. So my listening to him opens up a space for him to listen to me. And so when we're out talking to folks and they'll say, well, you know, I don't believe in voting or X, Y, Z. I don't even try to evangelize them. Then my next point is, tell me what it is you care about. And then normally we engage in a conversation about what they care about. And all every single aspect of our lives, I can connect to politics because it's true. And so if I, in that listing, if I'm able to make that connection and help them see the connection, like I hear what you're saying. I hear you, brother. You're saying you're concerned about brothers being locked up. Did you know that the DA makes a choice around who gets what sentence. And he might go into like, yeah, yeah, because my, bro- my, 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 my boy got such and such and such. And then we're able to make the connection because then politics becomes real because it becomes relevant to his life. And so for me, the important piece of them, it is no, I don't think it's a use of me trying to get folks to vote just as an act where I want them to vote because they feel a sense of their agency and their power. Like that's what's transformative. And so as we're going out talking to folks, my goal is to really be able to transform our people for to remind them that they have power and to believe in themselves and to use every tool. But also I'm very honest when we're talking too. So I'm not one of the ones that say you vote and the whole world gonna change because that's not gonna happen. Or you gonna vote, you gonna get everything you want. We know that's not true, right? So we have to be honest about both the limitations of voting but also the power of voting. And then I think when you have those authentic conversations with our people, they uh, they attach to it very differently. They respond to it differently. Even if they don't register at that moment, like there's a seed that's been planted of them thinking about their agency and their power. If they do that, then I feel like we've been successful. Mm, um, that's really powerful. I know when you're running an organization about voting that you have to have multiple strategies. From what you have seen, with younger voters and their apathy and older voters, what are the generational differences as to why these groups of people have chosen to disengage from the system? 
you know, it's a couple of things, but it's so interesting when it boils down to it, there are differences, but the differences are not as stark as people want to make, right? You know, people want to make it like black folks. When I'm talking to black folks in their sixties who've been working and still working and ain't making the kind of money and can't retire because they don't have enough money. I mean, they concerned with the same thing that 21 year old is was like, I can't find a job. There's an economic issue. If you can find that nexus, you know, there are some nuances and the differences because the generations are different. But there are some elements that I think that we create, like they're larger gulfs and in, in, in divisions. And I'm not so sure that that I've seen that right in the same kind of way that that I think the media um, plays it up. But I will say, you know, the interesting thing I do think with young folks, and I think on some level it even started with. Um, my, we're in this kind of in-between generation. I'm in generation X. The baby boomers were, were, had a different kind of orientation around party, right? So they was like, oh, I'm with the Democratic Party. Yeah, go, go, you know, go blue no matter who, right? And then starting our generation, you know, we ain't loyal like that, right? <laughs> Just like, you know, and not necessarily around um, the party, but the party identification. We, you know, we wear it a little bit, but uh, Okay, you know, all right, right. It started getting lukewarm, right? Young folks, they ain't having it. They are not attached to any kind of political party affiliation. They don't want the title. And it's not just on even um democratic voters. There was a um and in the some of the the, the my fellowship at Harvard, one of the um uh, polls that came out was the young people who also identified themselves as Republicans, um, uh, who identified themselves with coming from families that were Republicans, that their party affiliation, young people do not have the same feeling or sense of party loyalty um, as previous generations. I actually think that's a good thing, to be honest, right? And so in that process, so while we were kind of lukewarm and like, oh, okay, all right, all right, give me the blue, right? The younger people are really more moved by more issues. I also think this notion of you have to wait for change over a long period of time, I think that's shifted drastically. I mean, listen, you've got a generation that we're seeing that like technology is shifting so quick and so fast, you know, it is, they're seeing massive changes in every single area. Why would they not want to see those kinds of changes? Now you're going to tell them there's got to be some slow change to them. And so I think that they have a different orientation. I think it's it's natural for young people to want change, but I think in an environment when they're seeing and they're experiencing change happen so rapidly that they also have a heightened demand around change, which I also think is an opportunity as well. Um, and then I think that a lot of times when I'm talking around how they see the issue, I you know, I call young folks, it's like straight no chaser. Like, is at the end of the day, everybody else is like, well, what's the best word? We can't say defund the police. Yeah, such and such and such. Young folks are like defund the police. Like, I mean, that's what we want, right? Um, and then they, if you talk to them, they, they are very articulate around why it is that they want it. And their argument is solid. Defund the police had the kind of shock impact that forced people to pay attention whether they like it or they don't like it, the bottom line is they were able to bring an issue on the table that it ain't the first time folks have been hearing that issue that folks have been fighting for ever since that we've been in this country. I think that is kind of the role of youth, right? Like I, I think that's the role of youth is to push us, right? I think the role is to force us to go in those spaces that are provide for, for us to not be comfortable. And, and the truth of the matter is, you know, I always, 
I always um, quote this because my uh, my family, one of my family members would say it all the time. Until the pain of staying the same becomes the pain greater than the pain to change, you won't never change. Right. So if if we all in a space of comfort. Right. But but sometimes we've got to be pushed in this space of discomfort so we can literally be able to bring the kind of change we want. You know, I think that's one of the gifts that I think Trump bought, that that there was a level of complacency around structural racism in this country that folks want to be like, oh, no, we post racial America. Y'all had a black president. Right. You know, there was this element of, I think, around um, the economy. He had saved the economy and 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 and, you know, people were doing well and thriving. All those are 38 million people in poverty in America. Right. I'm raising that because I think on some level we are forced to deal with some of the ugliness that Trump didn't bring in. He just exposed it's been here. The elements of racism are here. The elements around classism um, are here. The, e the elements around inequities and folks being OK with inequity is here. And so at the end of the day, for no other reason, you know, is right in our face. Now, the question is how we're going to respond to it. Uh, I'm so glad you said that about defund the police, because I've been frustrated watching this debate um, because it's um, I was a little bit disappointed that former President Obama kind of used his platform to, you know, talk about I, I, he's free to discuss what he wants. I'm certainly not telling a man what to say, but it just fed a narrative that I felt like was just low hanging fruit. And to your point, defund the police is actually successful because what you have 13 cities that have chosen to do this, they would not have chosen to do this. If it were called something else, I think, you know, and when you're talking about the police, given the way most of us have been conditioned, you could have called it butterfly the police and it doesn't matter. You know, as a good friend of mine said, uh, the trigger word was actually police. It's not defund. OK, and we certainly understand what defund means when it comes to defunding other things. And then suddenly everybody wanted to act like this was so confusing. Um, so with that being said, though, it seems to me that there is a very different goal or at least different objectives between a politician and an organizer. Um, talk about what those differences are. I mean, we know the functions of their jobs are different, but in the way they're supposed to push our system, those are drastically different things because organizers want something that's totally different than what politicians want. Absolutely. And part of that's part of the problem of the political piece. I mean, the whole political landscape, because the truth of the matter is politicians should be wanting what the people want. Right. But what what has happened is we've created this political paradigm in this in this country. Right. That the system is greater than the people. The, no, the system is supposed to be in service of the people. And so we've got this thing flipped around because there are those who are in power who have always used this whole idea the, the, the idea of democracy, because they don't believe in it, right? This idea of democracy to really be able to control the rest of us and to control and make themselves in this space of, of what I call American exceptionalism. And so the role, it is a role of an organizer. It is a role of an activist to literally be able to bring in a vision that is what is going to be in the best interest of people, to push the system to serve people, the best interest of people. The, the irony is that is precisely supposed to be the role of a politician. That is what they're supposed to be doing. But that is not what they do. Right. Because part of what power does, power has a, an ability, uh, particularly when you're not rooted 
you're not rooted with some real values and ethics around it. Um, and when you have a system that is rooted in structural racism and is rooted in classism and elitism, that part of what happens is you've got this system that seeks to um, make sure that the folks at the top are okay and everybody else just scramble for the rest of it. And so, you know, even in the defund, to go back to your conversation around defund the police, you know, let me just say, I don't know if you remember um, in the 90s when um, uh, Clinton and there was this, this big excitement about um, welfare reform. So I, I'm sitting there looking at folks saying there are people who are straight up upset, right, about defund the police. But I ain't hear your voice when it came to defund people or defund single black women or defund folks who are literally at their last, right? Or defund, when we're talking about you, if you want to talk about defund, right, are you upset about the defunding of people in this country that has led to millions of people being on, on, on needing assistance or on the verge of evictions right now? You have been silent. So unless you can say something like that, I'm really not interested in your opinion around it because you're not consistent. You're really not consistent about literally like the, the, the care of people and the care of resources. You're using a political dynamic, in my opinion. You can have an opinion around that, right? Right there at the end of the day, young folks saying defund the police because they're like, stop damn killing me. Stop killing us. And so if that phrase bothers you more than the act, then that in itself says something. I am so happy though that that conversation is on the, table, on, the, on, the, on the table, right? Because we don't change until there's some discomfort. We don't. This country does not change. Like, this country does just not do the, do it, do the, the right thing on its own. When? I mean, they, they one, one time it did the right thing because it was just the right thing to do, right? It is it's some level of discomfort that ushers it in. And so I am hoping that even in this space and in this tension and in this dialogue, um, that there literally can be some real conversation so we can literally get to the root of this about what this is. So that's why even, even the conversation around the phrase, I'm like, I'm beyond arguing with folks about that phrase. I'm like, okay, it don't work for you to find. It don't work for you. But, but the point is like, where are you and what, where are you, where's your stance on the topic? And what are you going to take? Call it whatever you want to call it. Now that you know what it means. Yeah. Right. Cause if, cause my, I'm clear that if Congress passed a bill called the, the equity safety act and, and took, um, a hundred million from the police and put it in housing. I guarantee you don't keep the, the young folks that are with that phrase. They'd be just fine. That's what they want. So like literally don't make this be about just around the phrase. The phrase part of it is, is the discomfort in you because the truth of the matter is you fundamentally have a problem of what is being asked for. And that's not what we're talking about. This ain't just about the phrase. This is literally about a value and a value system that we need to sit with and we need to literally debate and we need to really take a part in why this and why we are where we are. Oof, I wish I had an organ to play because you're preaching right now, Latasha. Uh, I have more that I want to ask you. I uh, definitely want to ask you about this, this runoff. And I have some fun questions. You're always asked to solve systematic racism and voter suppression. So I figured like, I got to ask her something fun. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, we will have more of this wonderful sermon that is edifying all those listening with Latasha Brown when we return. Uh, Latasha, I've heard you you talk very passionately about the New South um, in terms of 
how uh, you and many others are organizing around this new coalition of diversity and inclusiveness and progressiveness coming through the South. I thought it was interesting, a stat I saw that there are 10 states where a black candidate has never won statewide office and five of those states are in the South. Um, What does that say about the hope for a new South, that there's still this block where we can't even get to a statewide office? And and how how are you hoping or helping to address that? That's a great question. You know, um, I am a I am a, a black girl from the rural deep south in Alabama. You can't get no deeper in the dirt and southern than I am. And at the end of the day, oftentimes the only thing I ever had was hope. Like, at, I, you know, what, what you going to do, depend on the system? <laughs> what you going to do, depend on the white folks in power? No. I mean, I, I, I'm raising that because, you know, part of change for our people has always been driven by those who were visionaries and had hope to see and to believe what other people couldn't see. Right. That that some people look at a mountain and decide that they're going to be a ditch digger. Right. There's some people that look at a mountain and say that I'm going to be a mountain climber. Right. And so and there's some that's like, let's just blow it up. Right. And so I, my, my, my point is that part of even the stats, as you raised, it is indicative of not the power and the potential um, of or the people. It is indicative of how the suppression has been so great and has been embedded within the systems in these states, right? So how could that be so? You know, you're looking at a state like Mississippi, you know, you're looking at a state, um, um, even in Georgia, like why is it uh, uh, such, you know, it we, it took us 27 years to really be able to um, flip the state from a Republican winning the presidential election. The truth of the matter is the South has been deeply underinvested. In addition to that, you have this the system has um and and people like well what system all of them right i can go from the electoral system i can go from the educational system i can go to that it is embedded the structural racism is embedded in the very fiber of every single system um in these states that is that leads to People the, being marginalized, the votes being marginalized, e- the, the, the um, not sharing in the economic wealth in those areas. And so it creates a particular challenge, you know, but I will also say these are some of the same states that literally led to the greatest movements ever in this country that changed the dynamics, not just for folk in the South, you know, changed the dynamics for the entire country. When I'm talking about, you know, domestic workers, where did they organize in Atlanta? Right. When I'm talking about folks who the right to vote. Right was actually at ground zero, and and I th- I think that um, well, even the labor movement. When you look at Virginia and West Virginia, and and the labor movement, and and um, when you look at folks, what they've contributed, the truth of the matter is, I think that where you have, I, it's it's kind of my diamond analogy, you know, where you have the most pressure and oppression, oftentimes you have the brightest diamonds. You know, coal, all diamond is is a piece of coal under extreme pressure that becomes a diamond. And so uh, people in the South traditionally have literally allowed their pressure to transform them and literally be able to be on the front front lines of being able to transform the South. And so what you're looking at is I think there's I think we are on the precipice of some change because of a number of reasons. One, there is the South is the fastest growing region in the country. 
Like for everything everybody got to say to South, y'all show trying to come all kind of trying to move to Atlanta at the same time. <laughs> um, the bottom line is there uh, there are some elements of that about the South, which is why I live here that I absolutely love. Um, the cost of living is cheaper. You know, I I about to say y'all also got that cheap land. <laughs> Listen, we like big houses down here. <laughs> I'm saying, man, I live in Los Angeles, and I tell you, both for what I pay at a mortgage here, I could be living in a palace up in Atlanta. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You would be big baller, shown up shot caller down south. And so really to be able to kind of the quality of life um, around kind of just cost, right? If you got some money or, or access to resources. And so there's some things and there's something, there's some things about the culture I love too, around the food and the people and the music and all of that. I do think that adds to the richness. Um, and it's interesting because the, the South has a certain level of diversity as well, you know, and what, and then what you're seeing is you're seeing this, this, this influx of change. And so you're seeing this one, this demographic change around who makes up the South. You're seeing a much younger population. The interesting thing is people are looking at Mitch McConnell um, and Lindsey Graham. They like the dinosaurs. Like we just wait until the last comet come down. Bam. And we're trying to make that happen in January. Right. Um, like they, they are like the, the, the last breed Custer's last stand. Like that's about to be over with. Right. Um, they're holding on now. <laughs> <laughs> they are. I, and I just, I mean, the Kentucky, like Mitch McConnell, I mean, I, I think he's literally, I, the, we, the, we've had a lot of bad ones. I think he's the worst politician in my lifetime. Like I, this man must hate people. I don't know why he ever was an, a, an elected official because you clearly don't like people and you clearly hate your constituents. And the, it's about the amassing of power. And I'm just looking at this like Kentucky. He could have been running against a shoe. Vote for the shoe. Okay. Like I, don't vote for this dude. And I'm like, Am I not understanding something? Do they not know how awful this guy really is? I don't get it. Like, I don't. And I'm not saying that the candidate that he went against was the strongest one. There was a lot of discussion about it should have been Charles Booker and all those other things. I literally do not understand what's happening in Kentucky. I will tell you what's happening. At the end of the day, what I have realized, and I realized this in this election cycle, um, I knew it, but I'm like, I know it now, that at the end of the day, the most uh, supported value um, by majority of white folks in this country is the consolidation of white power, right? Like Christian values. You know, I remember it was, I was thinking to myself the other day, I was like, I remember being young and I used to think they were patriotic because <laughs> they had some flags and stuff, right? And, and they don't love, like, like there's so many folks I'm sitting there, you have no love for democracy that you're supporting a candidate that, and you're out in the street saying, don't count the votes. Well, that's the whole antithesis to democracy, right? Like, like that it is, right? You, how can you, how can you say you pro-life or pro-anybody, right? And here is a person who over 200, now 300,000 people have died, right? And you're okay with that. There is this, we, what, what we have to really be honest about is there's always been very warped values in this country. Right. And there are people who have supported that. I mean, just think about it. The, I, I, I was reading some slave narratives, um, not too long ago. And I was thinking about, you know, it was on, it was one of these plantations and one of the, um, uh, enslaved Africans w was, was saying that the slave owner would come out there to them, preach a little sermon to them, go to the Bible, then come back and beat them. I'm like, I'm like, what, what, like, what, what, like, what, what, well, what were you thinking? Right. Like it's, and so, but I understand because there's a warped value system in this country 
that says nothing matters. Human life, right? Nothing matters outside of this concentration of white power. And unfortunately, there, the people in this country won't be honest about what that looks like and how ha that has led to the genocide of people, how that's led to the enslavement of people, how that has actually been devastating and destructive to even white America. You've got this, you've got poor white folk who are supporting people who don't give a darn about them, who actually are passing policies every day, right? To hurt them, to harm them, right? At the end of the day, I'm looking at them like, I'm your best ally because I believe in your humanity. I, at the end of the day, I'm the person that believe that you got value, right? I'm the person that believe that you should be treated with dignity and respect, but, but, but you have been so caught up and infected by racism that you will actually allow yourself to support someone who all the banner they've got is the banner of whiteness at the expense of killing you and your family every day. Yeah. I mean, it's deep. Like that's when, you know, um, just how deeply rooted racism is. It's like, you'd rather kill yourself than see other people. You feel like gain something out of this process. Uh, I want to ask you about two um, important uh, issues. One, uh, there's a lot of pressure on California Governor Gavin Newsom to appoint a black woman to replace Senator Kamala Harris um, or former Senator Kamala Harris, I should say. Let me correct myself. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, again, think that he, she should be replaced by a black woman because once she leaves, there will be no there won't be a black woman in the Senate at all. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And um, and whether or what are your thoughts on that? And and why, if you believe this, it's necessary. Let me just make it simple. The bottom line is black women have been doing the work. And as we the, the I, I do think that that there have been all people in, in that there are folks from everywhere doing work, but black women have been carrying this on our back. Right. And so the idea that even I don't even know why this is a discussion for him. <laughs> I really don't. I absolutely believe that he needs to appoint a black woman. I don't even know why that's a question. So let me get this right. You looking at black women like me and others to be able to deliver the Senate. And then we not representing that. Like, 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 how that work? Like, how does that work? So I absolutely unequivocally believe that there should be a black woman that's considered what I thought was interesting is, you know, um, what I have with some of the organizers that I work with in California, you know, it's recognizing that every time, I, every time that Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris has been um, elevated, um, appointed, that she has been, the, her appointment has been filled by a Hispanic man, right? Not, not even a, a Hispanic woman, but a man, right? And so I think it's really interesting that even in this moment, um, why, why would we not, and, and not just because, and I, and I don't have this position because I think, well, you know, it's just because it's a black woman, but why would that even be bad? Like, let, let me just say that, right? But the fact of the matter is there are women in this country, even when I think from, from Maxine, if Maxine Waters had been a white male, she would have been president 20 years ago, <laughs> right? Like there are, there, there, there from sexism, and I think across the board around that and racism, right? That black women have been, are even further marginalized. We are often looked at to carry a, a, a sizable amount of the weight, right? Because we show up, we do show up and we work, you know, but at the end of the day, 
when it comes to a sensitivity around how we're represented, we don't see the same thing. So the, my, my short answer is I absolutely think that he should select a black woman to fill that position. Uh, back in 1998, you ran for office, State Board of Education, and you lost by 200 votes. And there was a lot of reasons. The main one, magically, 800 votes for you were discovered, but it was it was too late after the fact. Um, will you ever run for political office again? I don't see it. You know, I don't see it. My aunt told me that. Well, let me say this. That the one thing that I have learned in my life is I don't run it as much as I thought I did. <laughs> Because <laughs> right now, I did not think that I would be on a bus getting ready to go around to South Georgia and play Santa Claus. That is not trying to get some votes out. That is not what I saw I was going to do the year, a month after I turned 50. I had it planned to me. What I thought I was going to do, I was like, literally, I was like, I, for the whole year, every month, once I turned 50, like I was like on a roll. Every month, I'm going to go to a different exotic place and I'm going to write a book. And I was like, I had all of these. I'm a singing dance all around the world. Like that's what I had planned on doing, right? And so I say that to say what I do know for sure is that my constant prayer is God use me how you will use me, right? And give me clarity to know what that is. Surround me with the people that can see that. The other piece is I had to kind of evolve from that because I know, you know, when I when I ran, it was such a um, it was such a painful experience because it made me feel powerless. Because, I mean, they basically stole the election. Um, it made me feel powerless. And you, you put yourself out there and you're vulnerable. And and it was so much stuff that I had experienced, I was like, okay, okay. like at, at, And I ran, a, I ran a couple of times. And I was like, okay, I'm done. Let me just work on the other side. And so the, 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 the protection side of me wants to say, absolutely not. I ain't never running again. I'm, I've got my peace, right? But I remember, but I also think about the many sisters that I am encouraging to run. Because at the end of the day, we need to be running stuff. <laughs> like, at the end of the day, we're the ones that should be in these positions of power and leadership to really be able to ensure that human beings are going to be valued and centered. And so what I can honestly say is I don't see it. You know, it's not a desire of mine that I am... Maybe, maybe it's a desire deep down that I just haven't acknowledged, but it's not a desire of mine right now that I am, I, that I am comfortable with, that I'm like, like feeling right now. I'm just not feeling the pull of that right now. But I will say that however life unfolds in me and it shows up. And if it shows up that that's a route to go that I'll put it, if it shows up that that's a route that I, I can go that can actually help bring some more relief or make me allow me in a space to be, have more effectiveness with my people, I will certainly consider it. All right. Well, I'm just going to remind you of your your own words that you wrote. Black women have shown that they believe in collective power and are not afraid to challenge enemies of democracy. And you certainly fit that bill. So I'm just saying, <laughs> all right, for all your mobilizing and organizing, I have a feeling you ran for anything this time around. You're not going to lose. <laughs> OK, um, when you look at the the success of Black Voters Matter um, in the presidential election and as you're you're poised now to. Um, be deeply involved in the Senate runoff. Uh, seeing the fruits of your labor, what did that prove to you about what can work in this country? What it proves to me is the power of possibilities and people who believe in themselves. I was on this conversation, um, uh, in, I, listening to this conversation on um, Clubhouse uh, that was kind of related 
I mean, I guess it was kind of related to that. I, I, I think that part of what we underestimate is that governance is only power, is only effective when people accept that that governance is legitimate. And so what we have to do is start pushing people to have a sense of their own power. Because let me tell you, this is what I know for sure. At the moment when people in this country say, we're tired of racism, racism will end. Like it ain't that deep. We act like you need some magic pill. The, the, it ain't no magic pill. Just stop being damn racist and, and stop believing in racism, right? Um, and that's and, and so when people in this country decide that everybody can share in the wealth, we will create a system that everybody can be all right. It is possible. It has been done. It can work, you know. And so part of what happens is a lack of people really believing in what is possible. And so in the even in these elections, the focus for me is not in seeing um, a win of an ele a, a electoral win as an end all and the be all. No, that's a means to an end, but it's not an end in itself. That ultimately, I want people to start feeling the sense of power because when you start feeling the sense of power, that's kind of like you know you that basketball player and you get that you get that last shot, man. You like trying you trying to work on your game, right? Because once you hear that crowd, once you get out there, you see that crowd yell, and you it's like it's something about it that wants you to be you. It's infectious, and so I think winning is infectious, and so I think that. That when people start feeling a sense of their power, they start operating. And I believe that when people start operating their power, they demand people to treat them differently. Right. You can't treat folks the same. Once folks got a taste of power, you can't treat them the same like that you used to be able to treat them. And so for us, you know, it's really being able to remind folks who have been and communities that have been so marginalized that they have power and that literally we can exert our power, our collective power to make some change. Um, and we don't even have to stay within the context of this paradigm. I often talk about using your radical reimagination that literally thinking about how can we create different systems? I literally, you know, I say it all the time. I want a department of democracy. People are like, well, how can you do that? Well, the, the department of um, the Depart Homeland Security didn't exist. The Department of Homeland Security was created 11 days after 911, right? And it was created to have a focus. You could argue the same thing people argue around the, this Department of Democracy. The whole Department of, of literally Homeland Security, you got a whole military that's supposed to look out for Homeland Security. Technically, you've got all, every element of government is supposed to look, look for it. But there was another element that the president at the time thought needed to be created to focus specifically because that was a weak spot. That's what I see in this country. There's a weak spot around democracy. And so I think we need a department of democracy that will literally fundamentally focus on protecting the rights of citizens and democracy in this country. Because it's been shown to me that the political parties, depending on where their interests are, they'll throw it up under the bus, right? Um, and that's on both sides, right? And so one side just worse than the other side. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm raising that because I think that part of our work and our work is really to not continue to be transactional, be transformative. Like we literally can change. We're, we're operating like we've just got to accept what was given, given to us. It ain't a single system we got literally that like we inherited this, all of these things we inherited. And so now while we are, while this is a nation that's growing, while things are changing, why can't we use our imagination and literally rethink 
every single thing. Like, why are we working 40 hours a week? I'm still like, uh, like, why are we working 40 hours a week? Why are crazy people like me working 60 hours a week, right? Like, why are we working that much, right? Why are we, you know, there's there, we should be questioning those things and really figuring out, is there a better way to live? Is there a better way to share? Is there a better way to love each other? You know, and I don't, and I think politics is the same way that we don't have to just continue to respond to what is, you know, some things you got to do in the meantime, is just kind of like now, like I got to work now because I need a check because I got to, somebody got to pay for this house. What I do know for sure is I do know that when people decide to create and change, things get created and things change. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, it's amazing to me that uh, despite how much this nation has changed, uh, we still operate in some days like we still, in, like it's 1776. I'm just like, we don't need to do that anymore. <laughs> like we don't have to do an electoral college. We, we really don't. <laughs> it doesn't even need to exist. And we know why it does continue to exist. Um, all right, Latasha, before I get you out of here, I promise you some fun questions. So we're going to get to those. It's a game I like to play with all of my guests. I call it this or that. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. Give you two options. You got to pick one. That's the end of it. All right. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, sugar on grits or salt on grits? Salt on grits. Who does sugar on grits? Listen. 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 Some of y'all Southern folks do that. Okay. Listen. <laughs> Some of y'all do that, all right? And that's I'm, some cream of wheat now. That's what I say. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's like, no. Nah, yes, uh-uh. it's only acceptable <laughs> answer. Salt, pepper, and cheese. That's it. Okay. Listen, I'm with you. Like, what, like, what are you thinking? But okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, so fresh and so clean or hey, yeah. Oh, oh, I don't care. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, that's a hard one. Oh, that's pressure, 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 pressure. Uh, <laughs> hey, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You think that's pressure? Uh uh, how about this one? Um, Phyllis Hyman or Anita Baker? Oh, Jesus. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. I'ma have to go. Oh, I'ma have to go Anita. I'ma have to go Anita. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm from Detroit. I don't mind. <laughs> I gotta go Anita. I gotta go Anita. Oh, but that's a hard one. It is a hard one. I feel like I betrayed Phyllis. I feel like I betrayed her, but not <laughs> I know. I, and, and you know, given your singing background, it's gotta like uh I figured I'd make it making that a little difficult for you. I know. Anita voice is like some honey. Yeah, it is. Now, uh, would you rather win a statewide political office or win a Grammy? Win a Grammy. Oh, I love it. Yes, <laughs> I love it. I want me one of those. Okay. <laughs> I feel you. All right. And finally, and I saved the the most difficult for last. And I did this not knowing who your assistant was. So let me just preface this by saying this. Okay, okay. All right, Latasha, Christmas is your favorite holiday. You have a gorgeous tree in your background that totally shames the tree that me and my husband put up together. Uh, Donnie Hathaway's This Christmas or The Temptations Silent Night. Listen, first of all, you need to understand that I need, that Danita Hathaway is like, let, let, let me let me say, it is without question, this Christmas. I love Silent Night, but I love, I love this Christmas. Just in general, I would do that. But also, let me just be clear, D- Danita Hathaway, um, who I work with, it's like literally, I would not know where I am going. You ain't about to get me in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see that. Yes. You would not get me in trouble, but I absolutely, I mean, this Christmas is, and this is the 50th anniversary of it, which is interesting. Yeah, it is. It is something about that song. It is, 
it is something about that song. Like, I think that's the Black Christmas anthem song. I, don't you? No question. Like, no question. Yeah, it ain't Christmas until I heard that song on the radio. I agree. It's not. Um, well, look, I hope you have a fabulous Christmas, uh, Latasha, and I hope you understand just how much uh, people are appreciative of your work with Black Voters Matter. Uh, and real quick, tell people how they can donate or contribute or learn more about Black Voters Matter. Okay, y'all follow us. We are on the blackest bus in America, running around these streets. Um, you can check us out on our uh, social media, Black Voters MTR, on Twitter, Facebook. We literally try to keep people up to breast where we are, what we're doing, and you can donate um, on our website, www.blackvotersmatterfund.org, or text us. Text We Matter to 797979. We Matter 797979. Thank you, sister, for this platform. Thank you for having me, and I really enjoyed this. Yeah, no, I enjoyed it as well. And like I said, when, when we historically go through everything that happened in this year, is that you, your role in, in generating um, a big black voter turnout, particularly in Georgia, is it cannot just be said enough how what a debt of gratitude this country owes black voters matter because you black women already say Wakanda. You had to save us from another four years of some awfulness. <laughs> so we thank you for that. Uh, Latasha's getting out of here. She was great. I hope y'all receive every sermon that she preached. I certainly did. But y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it. I'm bothered. a lot of fuss about Mitch McConnell at the top of this podcast, but there's a side issue to something I'm fucking bothered about that I need to get off my chest right now. On social media and sometimes in conversation, I've read and heard people refer to stimulus checks and general government assistance as handouts. There are people in this country who loudly complain about handouts, even though we know their complaints are hugely based on who they believe receives said handouts. So this is what the fuck I'm bothered about. I want everybody listening to take out their pay stub. If you a W-2 person, take it out. I want you to circle FICA, Social Security, all those taxes. And I need you to clearly understand something very important. There is no fucking handouts because pretty much all of us are paying into a system. We pay in so we can take it out. So this idea that we're getting things for free is just some bullshit. Let me give you the clearest example I can. You know how much your senator makes? Do you know who pays for what your senator makes? Do you know what their benefits actually are? Well, gather around the campfire, folks. The Senate pay right now is $174,000 per year. Do you know who funds the Senate pensions and their salary? We do. For example, Nancy Pelosi will receive $153,967 per year for her pension, which is all taxpayer funded. Mitch McConnell, as Senate Majority Leader, receives a taxpayer funded 401k that will net him roughly $1.1 million in retirement on top of that pension. So I am pissed off whenever people try to spin the narrative that the American people are getting something for free, or I'm sorry, black people are getting something for free. We aren't healthcare, education. We all pay into this. The stimulus bills and everything else are a result of the money we paid into the system. They're paying us with our own money. There is no handout. 
And the same goes for politicians. The reason you should care about politics is if some person on the street rolled up on you and said, hey, can I have a six figure salary? You would laugh in their face. So when you don't vote or aren't engaged in politics, you're saying you're okay with paying into a system and having no say about what happens to your money. In short, we, the taxpayers, are funding all of this shit. So we have the right to be frustrated, to question, to disbelieve. This is our fucking money. This isn't stimulus money. This is your money. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Rich Burner is our technical director and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, supervising producer is Jifa Yador and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. This or That Music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. on behalf of itself and Peep Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Please remember to subscribe and share with your friends.